Good day, and welcome to episode 28 of You Don't Have to Yell. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and I hope to God you don't have the flu, because this thing comes into your body and roams around like a nomadic tribe, making different parts of it feel horrible. With that out of the way, this is number two in our four-part series for Black History Month. Now, this week, we're going to discuss a country that was the colony of a major naval power and grew to economic prowess primarily on the backs of slaves brought over from Africa, only to have to deal with the societal repercussions after their emancipation in the mid-1800s. No, I'm not talking about the United States, and you already know that because I wrote all about it in the podcast notes you probably read before hitting play. I'm talking about Brazil. I don't know why I was being coy there. To discuss this, I have G. Reginald Daniel, professor of sociology at the University of California in Santa Barbara and author of Race and Multiraciality in Brazil and the United States, Converging Paths. In this episode, we discuss the similarities and differences in the history of slavery in both countries, how they both dealt with the issue of newly emancipated slaves, and how the issue of racism evolved over the years. And the key difference between the two lies in the question, what does it mean to be black? I want you to think about that as we go into the episode, because I'll be back at the end to give you my thoughts. And now, G. Reginald Daniel. Yeah, obviously, you've done a lot of your, your work on sort of the comparative history of uh, race in Brazil and in the U.S. And you know, one question I had, did you actually study down in Brazil? Did you go down to Brazil to do research? Yes. Uh, I stu- well, I studied t- two different places. I studied at the University of Lisbon okay. uh, in Portugal, and then I also studied at the Federal University in Rio. So I have lived in Brazil uh, for a year, and I was able to experience firsthand. But by the time I got there, I had done quite a bit of reading. Uh, so I was very knowledgeable about what I was likely to encounter there. But yes, I have been to Brazil. Interesting, interesting. I have, and this is going to be the most superficial, unimportant question to ask given the topic we're discussing. But I have to ask, what was your name? How did they pronounce your name in Brazil? Well, because <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> no, no, no. Look- the, 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 the name that people gave, well, the name people, Reginaldo. Reginaldo. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I was, because yeah. so for those listening, Brazilian Portuguese is extremely. Uh, rigid when it comes to how something is spelled and how it is pronounced. And so, for example, anything with a D, like, again, the end of Reginald, for example, would be a J sound. And uh, and then, let's see what else, the T is more of a Ch sound and so on. And everything ends with a vowel. So, for example, you know, they any American company that goes down there, like Facebook becomes Facebooky, YouTube is YouTubey, and so on. <laughs> and so I was sitting there and I'm wondering, I'm like, what did they call Reginald down there? And so I had Hedginology yeah. was my uh, was my guess, but Hedginaldo right. is actually no, that makes a little. They would say, you know, in, 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 uh, further down in the southern part of Brazil, they would say Reginaldo. 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 Like- yeah. And, but then they was, but in, in Rio, which is where I live, they would say Reginaldo, and then they would also say Regis for Reggie. So oh, Regis. <laughs> well, I, I heard about a, uh, I heard about a British guy who went down there. His name was Richard, and they called him Hargy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, there's someone here in the United States I know whose name is Miles, oh, and I asked him it. how did they how did they deal with that? He said not very well because there's really no equivalent. Milish as yeah. possibly or something. It was difficult, but Hezinal yeah. was a pretty straightforward. You just add an O onto Reginald, and then you pronounce you know the 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 R he, you know with a. Okay, yeah. Reginaldo, rather than rolling it like Reginaldo. So that was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. They might. So my, when, when we went down there, I have, I have four kids and uh, one of my son's name is, uh, is Ted or Teddy. Uh, so he's so, Ted G. Ted G. But when I, <laughs> but when they first asked what his name was, I said, Ted. And they all just looked at me like it did oh, not I can imagine. Cause, oh, cause that just, so yeah, he was Ted G after that. The one other thing I'll say too, as well, is I don't know if you ever encountered uh, there the Brazilification of McDonald's. 
No, I, not that I recall. I may have, and I just don't recall it. Mackie Donald's. <laughs> that that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Mackie Mac- Donald's, perfect. You know, absolutely. Yeah, there was another one that I that I um I can't remember. It was oh, Pingy Pongy. Pinky Pongy, yeah. <laughs> well, it's fascinating too because the country is so huge. Oh, absolutely. That mm-hmm. they, it's you really get a feel for what it's like to deal with America when you're in mm-hmm. Brazil because mm-hmm. they are big. They generally speak just Portuguese for the most part, and they really don't concern themselves too much with what goes on outside if it's not in how that relates to Brazil. Not, not in the same way that. I think it happens here, but, but it's a very, just the population allows them to be maybe a little more Brazil, Brazilia centric or Brazil, you know, allows them to kind of focus a little more on what's going on in in the interior rather than the exterior, I guess, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. You know, when I was down there and I, I grew up in Boston and, you know, obviously Boston has its own history of segregation blessing <laughs> yes exactly that's that and that my friend is another episode Ooh, that's entirely totally, that's several several podcasts uh, yes tell me about it but but there's but there's a uh you know growing up in boston you had your white neighborhoods and you had your black neighborhoods that's just how it was it was yes you know it was, it was very separated and uh and the when you when i went down to brazil the the thing that popped out at me was how on the surface it was integrated that's right and how there was no i mean i don't know how to phrase it black space and white space if that's the proper i don't know if that's the proper way to say it or not but but it was it was it was a very very integrated a a very very integrated uh society and Mm -hmm. it was really only after after spending some time there and about learning about the culture that there there seems to be a very unspoken social order down there that's based on skin tone oh absolutely oh yes definitely how, how is that experienced unlike the united states at least historically brazilians have not used ancestry as a criterion for determining a person's racial identity or their racial designation mm-hmm. uh when united united states has historically actually used something that's called the one drop rule for people of African descent or hypo descent, which essentially has designated um, people who are uh, backgrounds of color. If there's another component in it, the background of color always mm-hmm. trumps everything else, the, the European background particularly. Mm-hmm. But with people of African descent, the one drop rule essentially has historically meant that anybody who had any known African forebearers would automatically be identified as black and then they would also self-identifies black, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of physical appearance or any other kinds of distinctions. Whereas in Brazil, they, they, they have historically not used ancestry. It has really very much been physical appearance and skin color is very, very central to that. Although facial features and hair and other kinds of things could be taken into consideration. And mm-hmm. if they did, in fact, in Brazil, <laughs> use ancestry as a criterion, mm-hmm. a lot of white folks would vanish overnight. Because yeah. what's interesting, you know, a lot of what's so interesting is people have said uh, often that Brazil, outside of Nigeria, Braz- Brazil has the largest number of people, blacks, outside of yeah. Nigeria. But that's not an accurate statement. If you look at it in terms of the reality, only about 7% of Brazilians identify as black. Mm-hmm. But what you could say, and it would be the more accurate and powerful statement is, outside of uh, Nigeria, Brazil has the largest number of people of African descent, mm-hmm. whether they identify as white, multiracial, or black. Yeah. That's true. Because I, I don't know what the exact percentage would be, but those uh uh Bra- white brazilians i think the numbers were um, more recently the the numbers were something like about 48% based on the 2010 census um, among those people large numbers of them have african ancestry and know it and in brazilian terms that has not at all precluded being able to be self-identified as white and being considered white because literally your physical appearance is the determinant and socioeconomic and cultural factors are also taken into consideration but literally it means if you in brazilian terms look like what they consider to be a white person it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean therefore 
you automatically are assumed not to have African ancestry. People don't even, I mean, people know that would be absurd. Although there are some people who may try to deny that. Everyone knows that when you say you're white in Brazil, you're not talking about the same thing in the United States. And what's interesting is, uh, you said you went th through a lot of, throughout Brazil. In Bahia, where you have some of the largest numbers of people of African descent, where large numbers of slaves came in, uh, they have a whole term directly referring to Bahia called Branco da Bahia, means Bahian white. Since the word Branco means white, saying, yeah. well, okay, they might be white in Bahia, but we know what that means up there because they have a lot of white folks up there who have African ancestry. Um, and that person might not at all be considered to be white and say Sao Paulo or Santa Catarina in the, in the deep southern states. Mm -hmm. They might in Rio. It's hard because Rio's kind of a, a cutoff point there between the north and the south. If I'm correct, too, the majority of when, when slavery was in practice in Brazil, the majority of the slave economy was in the north, was in Bahia Salvador, correct? In Rio or, or no? Well, in the earlier periods, I mean, Sao Paulo became a big coffee growing area. And also you had uh, slavery involving the mines in Minas Gerais. So the thing that's so different about slavery in Brazil and compared to the United States that it was not regional as it was in the United States. It was national mm -hmm. all the way from Bahia all the way to the, to the south. Whereas in the United States, at least agricultural slavery, massive plantation slavery was located primarily in the southern regions. Uh, but the north also had slavery. I mean, slaves were involved in domestic labor. They were involved uh, in service capacities on farms, uh, stevedores, I mean, all kinds of things. And mm -hmm. a lot of the... Uh, Ships uh, were built in the north, and a lot of the merchants in the north accumulated wealth based on loans and uh, slave trading. Though the institution was not as entrenched as it was in the Deep South, certainly not the agricultural slavery. The north definitely uh, did, ha did have slavery, but in the, in the south, it became very regional. It became central also to the identity of that region. And was, you know, central to what ultimately ended up being the Civil War, because a lot of people say, well, the Civil War was about states' rights. I say, yes, they were. But one of the things that was called into question is whether the southern states had the right to continue to maintain the institution of slavery. And so they said, yes, they do. And the North says, no, you don't. Maybe you could correct the record here for me, but you know the, the version of history I was always taught in terms of why the North became anti-slavery as opposed to the South is just that it wasn't economical in the North of the United States. There's been a great debate, debate about this. Some people believe that slavery would have continued to be a profitable institution, you know, because it was essentially having people work for free. But the, the cutting off the slave trade was central to helping the institution wither. And Great Britain was very central in that. And the irony is it was not just because of compassion and altruism. If we're talking about compassion, slavery would have never existed in the first place. <laughs> yeah. But what it was is that England was a great exporter of products to the Americas. And they felt slave laborers were not really beneficial because that tied up a lot of people who had no money to buy products. And so the more wage earners you have, the more you can market and it's products and have people buy them. And so that was kind of central to their push along with, you know, the abolitionist movement really wanted because of the inhumanity of slavery. And so right there, um, there was an incentive. Uh, and then also the North was moving much more toward an industrial society as compared to the South. Uh, and so their their cultures and their economies now were, were continuing to diverge, and it was really going to be difficult. Okay, how, what kind of nation is this you know country going to be? And obviously, it took a civil war to determine that. You know, it's hard to know if slavery had been allowed to continue, whether it would have continued to be profitable. You know, it uses up a lot of land and. Um, the replenishment of the soil can be very difficult in some regions, and so it's hard to know. But it, it uh, essentially was there, there. There was the abolition movement, and it was abolished. And some of it was economic, some of it was humanitarian. But I don't think we should ever think that the overwhelming impulse, pulse, initially or even throughout, was only humanitarian. What I've learned of U.S. history is there's a moral sliver in what's done in the United States. And, and so it's not necessarily the driving force, but it is maybe the thing that ultimately drives 
part of the conversation. And uh, is it, am I, it, cause am I correct there? You know, I think it's probably in both. Both. I think one yeah. of, one of the things in the United States, in Brazil is is that the abolitionist movement was composed of people of all different backgrounds, and in the end, slavery was sort of gradually abolished in the middle of the century. You know, you had the the Free Womb Act, which meant that all children born to slave mothers would not be enslaved. And then the Sexagenarian Act, which is that people who are 60 years or older should be free. But, you know, like at that age, what person, what can a person do? I mean, it's yeah. not, that's not considered, well, how, who's that benefiting the slave owners for not having to take care of them? Or is it for the slave? I think one of the things people have to kind of realize, and it's hard because I'm not convinced this is actually taught well in the schools, certainly not in the public schools, and I don't know how well it is in college unless people actually take American history. But, you know, there were maybe 12 or 13 million Africans shipped to the New World, and only about 10 million of them survived. But what's interesting is that in the United States, there were only about 400,000 slaves, whereas in Brazil, there were 5 million. So right there, that demographic profile is going to have a major impact on all kinds of things, including the survival of African culture. While it didn't completely, you, you can't say there were no remnants of African culture in the North or in the United States. You know, words like, they, they argue that words like, okay, banjo, xylophone, a jukebox, those terms actually are African-derived terms. And also, if you listen to the people in the South when they speak, they're not going to want to hear this and they will be horrified to believe it. But linguists have shown <laughs> that the inflection of Southern speech is very much influenced by West African speech patterns in many ways, and the music and all those kinds of things. Yeah. But in, but in Brazil... Well into the middle of the 19th century, and even afterwards with the clandestine sort of uh, smuggling of slaves, and you had people fresh from Africa for whom African culture and Africa was a very present memory for them, and many of them actually ran away, many of them were men, uh, ran away, uh, particularly the, the one runaways, who maintained an African identity even in the midst of society where they were enslaved, and in the United States over time, that identity was transformed because most of the slaves were born in the U.S. and they kind of adapted to what they call country-born or Creoles versus saltwater slaves or who are just off the boat, which meant that African culture survived in ways that is, you can't, the only places in the U.S. you can find some remnants of that would be in South Carolina and in Louisiana. But also at that point, they were not part of the United States. Well, South Carolina, yes, but Louisiana was not part of the United States early on. It was part of Latin America. The French and the Spanish settled there. And so you find this similar demographic where large numbers of Africans, small numbers of Europeans, and so that culture, the European culture, gets melded in many ways with the African culture, and ironically, with religion particularly, one of the arguments that people used to make of the syncretism that you see in Candomblé, which in many ways is a blend of Catholicism and African religion, but it is primarily an African-Brazilian religion. They argued, well, the Catholic Church was more genteel, welcomed people in the church, and, uh, and uh, could, take, they could take the sacraments. And so that's why African culture survived. That's absolutely bogus. The reason African culture survives is that the people continue to practice it, and in religion... Many of what the African slaves did was is they practiced their own religion by hiding African gods behind Catholic saints, and the slave owners didn't know they were praying, praying who they were praying to at that time, <laughs> and so uh, the notion that there was something genteel about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was one of the biggest holders of slaves, okay, and they sanctioned it early on along with the state. So it's really hard to make any argument about generosity. Brazil and the public sphere, particularly in social interaction, visually is much more integrated than the U.S. But when you look at the political, the socioeconomic structure, and those kind of things, I think you can see that what Brazil and the United States both share is, is anti-blackness. I mean, that is central to the founding of both countries, certainly in the national imaginary in terms of how they see themselves. And so people need to get their heads around that fact that the centrality of anti-blackness, and there's a man who wrote a marvelous book, Vargas, called The, the Denial of Anti-Blackness. If you can't get the centrality of that, then you really misunderstand what's really happening in Brazil and the United States. And I think key to that is, is that that has collateral damage 
on other communities of color as well as vulnerable and poor whites. So it is not to suggest that then any one group of people is more traumatized than the other because trauma is trauma. But the point is, is that that the stigma attached to blackness uh, is very unique and that even blacks don't experience anti-blackness the way non-blacks do. And all of this is in many ways derived from the whole racist ideology that emerged with Europe's rise to global domination and colonization of the Americas surrounding the justification of African enslavement. And, you know, I mean, humans have been enslaving each other forever. But yeah. what's, re what's really unique about the modern slavery that emerged with European colonization is, is that it was in perpetuity, meaning you never cease to be a slave. You were a slave your entire life, and so were all of your offspring, whereas previously, Mm -hmm. Once a slave was a slave, they were a slave by a lesser human being, but still slave, not a piece of property or an object as they became in the modern world. But mm -hmm. once they were free, they were welcomed into the citizenry. I mean, they were not, their stigma of slavery did not carry, they didn't carry that with them for the rest of their lives. With modern slavery, that's not, it's not, not, not true. You were a slave for the, for your entire life and your children. Then not only that, once you were free, the stigma followed you forever. It didn't vanish. And I think part of people, what people don't realize that while slavery no longer exists as a formal institution, the mentality behind it that gave it sanction is still very much alive in both Brazil and the United States. And it manifested in this stigma associated with blackness. So how far back, because obviously for, I think for people like myself, when we, when we think, okay, where do we go wrong? Like, where's the fork in the road? Um, obviously for the, the easiest dot on the map is the institution of slavery, is when Europeans started going to Africa, taking Africans, bring them over to the colonies to work on the farms. And is that, is that when it started? It sounds like there's something philosophically much deeper than just that action, though. Is, am I correct? Or? Well, I don't know. You know, the, 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 the genocide of Native Americans sort of preceded slavery. And, and yeah. they were some of the, the Europeans experimented with, with varying degrees of success. Uh, you know, in, in, in Mexico and Peru, very successful, devastating on the population. Not nearly as successful, say, in the Caribbean areas because of the small uh, hunting, gathering, na horticultural nature of the populations where you mm -hmm. have these dense agricultural populations in Peru and um, Mexico that made it possible to graft on the kind of agricultural slavery that Europeans wanted. If you look back at human history and you look at the atrocities humans have committed against each other, religion has been used, cultural has been used, um, national, what, I mean, not, not, not national identity because that is a fairly new modern phenomenon. I think the atrocities associated with the genocide of the indigenous populations in the America particularly, and then also that conjoined with the involuntary migration of people from Africa to serve as cheap labor, are the two twin horrors of them, that part of the, the modern world. And I think it would be hard for us to be living in the kind of world we live in if um, millions of people of African descent were not uprooted and brought in as free labor to build up the wealth of the nations in the Americas. I mean, even the universities in the United States, many of them on the East Coast, came into existence because of wealth built upon the slave trade. Uh, and so, uh, you know, someone has done a marvelous uh, study of, you know, many of the Ivy League universities in the United States, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Rutgers, uh, are all directly implicated in the institution of slavery. They probably even had slaves on the campus, but also the wealth that was accumulated made it possible for many of those things. I'd like to jump back a little bit to, you know, how the issue of race and and racial integration was sort of handled in in you know the post emancipation period, or you know, because it, it, obviously in in the United States, I think we relied more on segregation and we relied more on a, a legal structure that uh, that disenfranchised uh, the black community. In Brazil, it almost seems like there was an effort to genetically whiten the population in a way. And that was sort of their way of dealing with racial integration. And am I right there? Oh, I think you're unfortunately, <laughs> that's very spot on. Okay. Uh, I, would, I would add a few more 
ruffles and flourishes Please. of details yeah. to that. But no, I mean, that the thing is, is you know, for, first of all, one of the things is that in Brazil, plantations owners were some of the very first people to want to enslave because they were already moving in the direction of paid labor uh, before slavery even ended in 1888. Part of that was directly related to this overarching national plan to whiten the population. And having white European, European laborers come in was one part of that process because there was absolutely no intent of doing anything to prepare slaves or former slaves to participate in the labor economy. No intent yeah. whatsoever. In fact, the hope was is they would just vanish, either through death or uh, other kinds of attrition, uh, and be replaced by all of these European immigrants uh, coming in. Uh, and so in that sense, um, you know, in both the United States and Brazil, there was no redistributing of the land or anything like that, yeah. which could have been very meaningful. It was like, well, let them figure out how to do it on thems th themselves. There was no intent of providing any kinds of meaningful, even with the Freedom Freedmen's Bureau in the United States, that lasted a very short period of time. And really... I don't think people cared, for the most part, about what happens to the former the, the slaves and their descendants. And there was yeah. there was no major issue in that. The big thing in Brazil, though, is is that in the 19th century there were all kinds of uh, ideolog ideologues in 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 Europe, particularly, and many of them were influenced by Brazil and people in the United States, think racial thinkers, who believed that. You know, biology is, is intelligence, biology is behavior, and the assumption was that somehow or another because Europe had reached the pinnacle of civilization in the modern era, this must be attributed to biology. This could not be context, this could not have anything to do with circumstance. But if you look at that, they said, well, how do we explain Egypt? And they actually went there and looked at Egypt and said, well, yeah, they're white. Okay, well, that's really not accurate. But the point is, how, how do you explain the pyramids, which antedated the Sistine Chapel? But the argument is, is that the United States, particularly because of the Anglo-American domination of the racial hierarchy, even among Europeans, can be explained by the fact that of the genetic superiority. And so there were all those arguments floating around in the 19th century about uh, the superiority of European DNA, if I can put that in quotes. Well, in Brazil, that presents a serious problem. Because, first of all, the Europeans are not from Northern Europe, which are seen as superior. And also, African ancestry is throughout the entire society. Even the upper elite uh, uh, cannot be 100% sure they don't carry any indigenous or African ancestry. So any notion of you know genetic inferiority is going to be very alarming uh, to Brazilians. Uh, whereas in the United States, where racial boundaries had been pretty strict, the even though there was paranoia about it, the, the thought that there would be lots of people walking around who were white identified who actually had African ancestry was consider considerably diminished. Where in Brazil, <laughs> certainly in the 19th century, you had a bunch of white people running around uh, with African ancestry. And, and the African-Brazilian population of blacks and multiracials was the majority way mm -hmm. into 1890. So Brazil is looking at this as like, wow, Europe says there's no hope for us. There's a blind alley there uh, in terms of our ability to participate in the ongoing process of modernization and civilization. What do we do about this? And we said, aha. There's a, there's a solution. If we bring in more Europeans, that will improve our genetic stock. And so that was the argument of bringing in Europeans, particularly Northern Europe. They were really keen on Germans uh, and Northern Europeans. They weren't as happy with the Italians that came in. But, they were at least, but at least they were European. That was better. And that was, you know, there was also the desire for cultural whitening, the, 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 the survival of African uh, culture through samba, candomblé, and capoeira, all of those were under attack in the late 19th and early 20th century as barbarous survivals of a past or Brazil, Brazil needed to move beyond. So there was this sort of cultural cleansing or ethnocide, if you want to call it that, of those uh, cultural remnants uh, of Africa. And, uh, you know, the, the remodeling of Rio de Janeiro and uh, uh, using Paris as a standard uh, with the broad, broad boulevards and what have you was a purposeful attempt by the state to Europeanize Brazilian culture and also genetically whiten the population with the understanding is this is going to improve Brazil's chance of being seen as a bona fide nation, modern nation, particularly 
and increase its likelihood of uh, being an advanced civilization. In the United States, obviously, segregation was a strategy to keep the, the races separate. And if I'm hearing you correctly, is the root of that in this idea that to be white and European was to be genetically superior. Well, in the, ni- in the 19th century, that was the prime argument, yes. And people, accept, play, people accepted that completely. Uh, there were voices that uh, contested the argument, and it doesn't hold up well if you look around in the world. But when you, when you look around the world, you see what you want to see. And, you know, Egypt became a real contested domain in this area because Egypt's in Africa. They talk about the Middle East, but it's actually east of the Nile. And it is on the continent of Africa. And a lot of different uh, populations have contributed to Egyptian civilization, including people who look like the people who are from West Africa, who are the progenitors of the slaves in the America. People from Europe, Europe have also contributed, and people from Asia as well. So you have to kind of like, well, what do we do with Egypt? Well, they just essentially said, well, I'll tell you, uh, they're brown Europeans. <laughs> and... We need them to be European in order to justify enslaving the people uh, in West Africa and those in Egypt who may look like them, who may have an affinity. We cannot have them not be white because it will not just help. It will not help us maintain our sense of white supremacy here. And so, anything that's gray gets recoded as white in order to main, you know, prop up that ideology. And so, in that sense, Brazil was sort of. Uh, one of, and this was all throughout Latin America, though. It's not in Brazil. Venezuela, Colombia, everywhere in Latin America had to deal with this because miscegenation and genetic mixture was so prominent and had been for like 500 years. Oh, wait a minute. By that point, 400, 300. That separating people based on, on fractions and of ancestry and genetics just wouldn't, did not, it would not, have, it couldn't, couldn't work. So they had to find another way of dealing, you know, a new version of white supremacy was, was just to get rid of black people. And if you don't have any black people, you have no problem. Is that the, is that kind of the root of it all? Is that, is it, is it really just that human beings by nature throughout history have been really nasty and really cruel to each other? And there's, <laughs> there, you know, well, I'm telling you, if you look at the orgasm of human history, it'd be hard to disagree with that. But you yeah. have to, you have to say that there have been moments, collaboration and celebration of difference. If human history had only been about those kinds of atrocities, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation because it just wouldn't have been possible. There's a natural, well, I wouldn't say natural, there, is a, there could be a, a pro, you know, propensity for people to deal with difference in a way with something that is unfamiliar and they would be frightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uncertainty uh, surrounding the impact, the feel of threat, you know, group threat kind of theory in terms of mm-hmm. difference is, 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 going, is going to make me, it's going to somehow to diminish me. I mean, I think that's definitely part of, of human history, but I think there's also this other collaborative mm-hmm. dimension in human history where people have actually overcome those differences and worked together. And so the, the yeah. question is not so much the other, but what you do with the other and how you rank the other in relationship to you. And I think that we have both tendencies available to us to rank the other as an equal or to rank the other as an inferior. Yeah, And I think social circumstances can help influence which direction we move with that. In the U.S., you had segregation. You have situations today that are, are very clear echoes of that. How does that appear in Brazil? Some of the very same ways that they manifest in the United States, which is why João Costa Vargas' book is so powerful, because he looks at the impact this had on the incarceration, the hyper-surveillance. Mm-hmm. Police brutality in terms of the assault on black bodies, particularly black male bodies, although women are not exempt from this. That is one of the you know ways this continues to manifest. And, I, and one of the things that I think it's important to remember about Brazil, notwithstanding all of the mixing, notwithstanding all of the interaction interpersonally, and some way, and in the public sphere, there is a very clear racial hierarchy, and people are aware of this, and they know it exists. But also, Brazil may have never had legalized segregation like the United States with Jim Crow, but they didn't need it. That people's behavior informally reproduced segregationist behavior, uh, and so you didn't need a sign on a building that said, you know, whites or coloreds, because people knew not to enter in certain places. So while uh, Brazil never had formalized uh, racialized segregation. Informally, mm-hmm. it existed. And if you look at the power dominance, who has wealth, who does not, what have you, I mean, it's really interesting because when I, when I was there, if you look in the public sphere, if you look at the bus drivers, 
if you look at tellers and banks, if you look at restaurants and you look at the people who meet you in the, the beginning, the, the, the uh, hostess or host, when you enter the restaurant, and then you look at the people who wait the tables, and then you look at the people in the kitchen. There's a mm -hmm. big visual difference in terms of the physical appearance, largely, mm -hmm. in terms of those people. And so there's an informal written rule uh, that, you know, whites are more privileged in both co both countries. It's just the United States. It was legally sanctioned in ways that it was not in Brazil, but the manifestation is there. And also white is a lot more fuzzy in terms of who is white and who's not. But what's interesting is, is that, you know, there's a statement in Brazil that a lot of people have used money whitens. Well, okay, this is very important because what it says is, is that if you are lucky enough somehow or another to pull yourself outside of out of poverty, mm -hmm. uh, and you're a person who is black and brown in Brazil, you may be able to overcome your black and brownness because of your socioeconomic achievements. But to call that money whiteness right there avenges the fact that whiteness is privilege. Mm -hmm. To even make that mm -hmm. statement. Yeah. And so, you know, the class divide in Brazil follows very much the racial divide, although you do have poor whites and you have mm -hmm. some prominent uh, black and multiracial people in Brazil, or prominent African Brazilians. The overwhelming majority of African Brazilians are in the bottom of the social structure and whites have much more privilege. And so you can't just explain that way as class. You have to see that as a very racialized class structure or 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 very racial class uh, racial structure that influences the class structure however you want to look at that but because it was never marked demarcated in terms of things that we're accustomed to in the United States and it was never formally sanctioned it's a lot easier for people to go over oh, Brazil has a more tolerant passes hardly clearly clearly they didn't have lynchings like they did in the south here but some of the things that happened to African Brazilians after slavery were certainly the equivalent, and you could not argue that um, that, that their their policy of whitening was anything about egalitarianism. It was essentially we need to get rid of this black stain, and the way we do it is to bleach it out. You mentioned lynchings in the South and the general sort of terrorization of the black community in the South, of the United States. What were some ways that that sort of terrorism happened in brazil or what were some of the ways that were, were there examples that i think corresponded to that there were none comparable to to my knowledge now vania may be able to give some more details on this okay. there was an attack on a place called canudos in the northeastern part of brazil that was highly racial inflected mm -hmm. uh, and it was part of the whole cleansing process i mean that was that, mm -hmm. this was considered to be an eyesore um and even some of the you know the, 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 the police shootings these days of uh, uh, young African Brazilians, uh, very much like in the United States, uh, exist. But I don't, you do not have the kind of history uh, of lynching. And lyn lynching is also a very symbolic <laughs> phenomenon also in ways that doesn't fit well with Brazilian culture. Uh, like I said, I'm not aware of anything specifically that duplicates those kinds of things in Brazil, but there were certainly informal ways through, uh, you know, wiping out neighborhoods to um, in, in Rio to make way for more modernized housing, putting people in uh, substandard housing with, with without um, proper sanitary facilities, those kinds of things, uh, and intentionally actually. Uh, would be the equivalence, but I just don't think there's any there. There does not. There does not. To, I'm not aware of this sort of dramatic symbolic uh, history uh, of lynching that you have in the United States, and and you have to, and also those lynching in the United States. Not all of them were largely targeting men. Now, certainly in the Southwest, you had people of Mexican background and and people in, of Chinese ancestry who were lynched. But it is also a phenomenon that was disproportionately. Um, functioning in the South as a way of controlling black men and black male sexuality, a lot of it. So much of it was evoked because of something mm -hmm. that somebody did to a white woman. Not, so all, almost, not, not all of them, but a, a great deal of them were directly that. And if you look at D D Griffith's, um, the name skips my mind at the moment, uh, the famous movie at the moment, I can't remember it. It's not Birth of a Nation, is it? Birth of a Nation, Birth of a Nation. A lot of the images in there are about that. You know, So lynching was very much implicated in protecting, supposedly protecting white womanhood. You know, it seems to me the, the emancipation 
of enslaved blacks in the United States was a very culturally shocking event in the sense that troops came to the South literally to enforce this new policy. Absolutely, absolutely. And in Brazil, that didn't happen. No, no. Well, you know, because everyone was kind of in agreement, abolition, slavery's done, we're done with it, end of discussion, more or less. That's simplistic, but, but the South, this is, this, this is really where the complexity and the interweaving of nefarious things uh, in the United States have taken place in relation to it. those troops. You know, at the end of the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendments essentially gave African-Americans, particularly men, you know, they abolished slavery with the 13th, and the 14th gave African-American men citizenship and then the right to vote. The point is, is that African-Americans had those laws in the Reconstruction Amendments that essentially made them equals to whites in terms of the law. But the only way uh, those could be enforced was to have the Northern troops, largely Republican-supported, to be in the South to prevent African Americans from being assaulted. And what's really fascinating, a lot of people like to use this sort of warped history, say, well, see, the Democrats were the ones that supported slavery, and the mm-hmm. Republicans say, yeah, but those were not the same parties that we're talking about now. Very different. In fact, it's the exact flip. They flipped. First off, this conversation is way overdue because what I've learned in the time I've been doing this is that everything in the United States has some racial tension. It's hard for it because it's so central to the founding of the country. Yeah. And the interesting factoid that I heard was, I think it was in the 19, I think it was 1960. If you were a Democrat, you were in the party that was most likely to either vehemently support or vehemently oppose integration. That's absolutely true. Yeah, or mm-hmm. desegregation. No, yeah. that, is abs- that changed over time with, you know, with Roosevelt. And by the time you get to Lyndon Johnson mm-hmm. with his Southern, stra- uh, not just that's Nixon with his Southern. Nixon, you mean, right? Yeah, yeah but, but, but yeah. Johnson was a real turning point with that. And he real well realized that with that civil rights bill, mm-hmm. that he said, we'll lose the South for a generation at least with this, because that kind of equality is, is, is something that people in the United States were very uncomfortable with. And what the irony of all this is, yeah. The founding documents, the doc- Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution are absolutely three of the most powerful documents humans have ever written. If you look at the nuance that they provided in those documents, the complexity of issues they deal with there, those are powerful, and, 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 and people in the United States know that, and, and groups have often used those documents to justify the long overdue equality that is due them. But the United States has fallen considerably short consistently in living out the aspirations of those documents. I mean, though mm-hmm. th- that's the real problem there, and it's all about race. I mean, Tom, one of the reasons that Thomas Jefferson which is another whole story, but he wanted, he wanted to, you know, African-Americans just felt like, you know, we should have never had slavery in the first place, but it's here. It's an economic necessity, but what we really need to do is start getting people of African out of this country and colonized in Africa, because I think he realized this will never, ever be solved. This stigma and the horrors of slavery and the conflict involving it will be with the country forever. Maybe not forever, for a really long time. And if you look at it, there is some real truth to that. And the question is, okay, how do you eradicate that? And I'm not sure I even know the answer to that. All I can say is, is that a first step would be for us to know our real history, not something mm-hmm. that is doctored up, not something that just covered, covers over Things with with glossy language that that evades really what took place, you know, reset, genocide versus resettlement, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think we know that. I don't think most people know the U.S. history, and this is really not. And one thing people do: this is not about demonizing anybody, particularly people of European descent. That's not the intent of that. Part of the whole truth and reconciliation is dealing with the truth rather than what you want things to be. And you know, we had post-truth reality way before this contemporary period where people say, I don't like this, so it doesn't exist. This is what I want to be, so this is reality. And when you teach students history that's really not grounded in the facts, but rather perhaps alternative facts, quote-unquote, that make you more comfortable, then that's crippling. And we've done that generation after generation of crippling young people who really don't, who become adults, who really don't know our history. 
Yeah, well, the term I've kind of come to use is, and and you know what I was taught is maybe what I'd call white people black history, which is yeah, you know, you know, you had you had slavery and that was bad, and then we had the Civil War and the slaves were freed and everything was fine, but then things weren't good, and then Martin Luther King marched on Washington there you and now go. everything's fine. That, that's the mon- that's, that's the mantra. And, and so, what are you crying about? Is basically the the end of it all, you know. That's it. That's and, it. And that is that is white people, black history in a nutshell. For those of you who who are unfamiliar, uh, which I find hard to believe, um, but yeah. I, and, and so, I, I I think that you know, and I've I've gone over this in in a number of different episodes where you know a lot of politics in America, which of course is you know the ultimate vehicle for change and the ultimate vehicle for justice in in the United States and is is extremely identity based. Oh, very much. And and they've and and even you know we we touched a little bit on the southern strategy. I think I've said the southern strategy so much in the last few episodes that people are just going to be sick of hearing it. But I mean, you could make a drinking game out of the number of times I say southern strategy in in these episodes, but um but the southern strategy specifically um you know nixon's southern strategy was you know seemed very much based on touching on the cornerstones of white identity absolutely and, and, and absolutely one one being evangelical christianity and the other being quote unquote law and order which was kind of a coded term for uh segregation or for absolutely is that yeah, yeah. No, I think and, so, and he was strategic about using them because, you know, those were seemingly disenfranchised people who felt they had no voice. And this is a perfect way of bringing them back into the fold. Yeah. And so there's almost it, in, in the United States, and I'll, I'll maybe ask you to comment on, on how this is done in Brazil. But I think if you take a look at what law and order connotates and, 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 and uh, you know, and this, this goes and you can see this time and time again, you could see this in Birth of a Nation, but it connotates this animalistic population absolutely uh, mm-hmm. that exists just outside our door. And the yeah. only thing that is going to protect us is uh, our, well, in the case of, you know, Birth of a Nation, obviously glorified the, the Ku Klux Klan. Um, I think, um, I would say maybe Nixon's language was more uh, related to, you know, police enforcement or you know, right. police, you know, and, and so I guess like, but Brazil, you have this society that's, that's mixed. So that doesn't work exactly. Well, it's that, hard. So, it's, it's very yeah. hard to enforce it. They, but they were all subtle kinds of ways. Like I said, the racial hierarchy is very real in Brazil, you know, and it can change from day to day, from location to location, whether in the North or the South, but there's a clear understanding that, and at least historically, there have been challenges to that since the 70s. Uh, and there's an ongoing struggle about validating blackness and validating the contribution that blacks have made to society. But it's, it's, it's in dialogue with this continuing presence of white supremacy that you see in the recent election in many ways. Uh, even though large numbers of African Brazilians voted for him because of the law and order argument, the point is, is that that is so embedded in everything people do in Brazil, even in their daily encounters, even if those are more egalitarian than some of the things you see in terms of socioeconomic factors. And I think one of the things that's interesting about Brazil is that um, the... And just the, to pause, I didn't. I don't mean to interrupt, but by the election, you mean the election of Bolsonaro. Down yes, in, that's exactly is, what yeah, I meant. Okay. Uh, the thing is, is that, you know, this whole different trajectory that Brazil followed, you know, there's a historical process. It's complicated to explain. But part of it is, is that Brazil was settled largely by uh, single European men, even if they had wives that did not bring them. Many of them were bachelors. Uh, And they were in a minority. And they were in the midst of this large population of indigenous people. And then when African slaves came in, they were still a minority. And because men did not have female partners of Mm -hmm. European descent, their choice was the available women, which was indigenous women, uh, women of African descent, and then mixtures of European, African, and indigenous. But most mm-hmm. of those relations were coercive. Uh, they were not necessarily egalitarian, even if they were concubinage. Concubinage mm-hmm. is not about you know e- equal equal partnership there. Uh, and there were laws. Maybe uh, there were there were restrictions. I would say legal restrictions seeking to prohibit those, but there was no way they could because of the demographics shortage of what European women, large numbers of people of color. And so what you had happen is, is that 
over time, this incredible kind of mixing took place, much of it outside the, you know, bonds of holy matrimony. And mm -hmm. often the people who are the mixed offspring filled sort of an intermediate location in the economy uh, as overseers, mm -hmm. barbers, um, as carpenters, these kinds of things. Uh, and so the intermediate physical appearance of multiracial folks became also associated with a sort of middling role in the economy. And many of them, uh, they could perform things that slaves were not supposedly going to do. They were not mm -hmm. slave owners. And so you kind of get this sort of in-between racial space that allowed some negotiation of vertical mobility. And because mm -hmm. racial boundaries were so fluid, uh, the definitions of racial categories also became very fluid. But there was always a racial hierarchy in which whoever was designated as white, however mm -hmm. fuzzy the category, was always going to be more privileged. And mm -hmm. so you couldn't fractionalize people in ways in terms of ancestry, as I said earlier, because your African ancestry is spread throughout the entire population. And so trying yeah. to segregate based on the one-drop rule and some restrictive definitions of blackness would not work in Brazil, but there were other ways they could still manifest in terms of anti-blackness in the ways that I've described previously. Yeah. And, you know, something you you, you, you were saying earlier kind of touched a, touched on something that I, I heard a while ago, which is I had a you know an African-American friend of mine who grew up down in, uh, down in Louisiana. You know, one of the things he said, and he spent the majority of his life now up in the Northeast. But the thing he said about living down in the South is that there, there was a, there was a very, there was that unspoken racial order. Oh yes. And, yes, definitely. And you knew, you knew there were things. So if you went to college, for example, and there was an all white fraternity, you knew you weren't going to pledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, and it sounds to me like that's kind of the, the situation in Brazil. I think where that's very accurate. I think it is. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things also, as the counter, the United, early on in the colonial period, certainly there was a, an imbalance between males and females. But what, mm -hmm. what you had happen is, is that early on, large numbers of Europeans settled in families. That had a big, mm -hmm. big impact. Uh, that reduced the need for the interracial family sort of to become the norm. Mm -hmm. And even though there were interracial relationships, they were certainly not as numerous as the ones in the United States because there was a, there was really no incentive because there were yeah. eventually plenty of European women. And then also yeah. because there were lots of intermediate whites, poor European immigrants particularly, who could mm -hmm. fill those intermediate roles that in Brazil were largely filled by free people of color who were disproportionately multiracial. So there was really a disincentive to distinguish with any kind of special privileges people of multiracial descent in the United States, whereas in Brazil, it was sort of factored in there. And so you kind of move into sort of this binary, white or non-white, or white or black, particularly in uh, the United States, whereas in Brazil, you know, there was the white and there was the multiracial population and the black population. And those are still intact, even though there has been, there have been challenges to that in Brazil. There's been an attempt to erode it. And actually, bring in something much more like the United States. And certainly in the United States, with the growth of offspring, particularly of interracial marriages, where they're actually being socialized, many of them by their parents as being multiracial, it's complicating things and making much of what has historically been seen as Brazilian much more like Brazil now in the United States. But the real key throughout all of this is, is, is challenging the racial hierarchy. Whatever's going on, any kind of change you make in race in our society is always volatile. But if you don't attack how many categories you get rid of or you add, if you don't attack racial privilege, and I think that is one of the things that I think really it's hard for European Americans to grasp is, is that the racial spoil system that was built up gives you unearned advantages as a white person, whether you want them or not, whether you're engaged. Well, whether you're engaged in anti-racist work. And if you don't take ownership of it, then you really don't understand what it means to be white. Yeah. Well, I, I even think so. My, you know, my family all came here in the, you know, 1920s and 30s as uh, from, from Ireland. And so, um, and I like to say my, my grandparents were lucky enough to arrive here just at the tail end of when it was cool to not like the Irish, you know, so they, <laughs> cause there was a period when it was real cool not to like the oh, Irish. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so my, you know, my grandmother has a few stories and, um, and, and, but, uh, but the, 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 the key difference is, is, you know, it takes a generation to lose an accent. One of the things is, is although there were restrictions placed 
on immigration in the 1920s to prevent people, particularly from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, from coming yep. to the United States. There were never any laws in the United States, sanctioned at least, certainly not by the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. to discriminate against people of European descent. They've never been denied citizenship, never. Yep. Yep. And the, all these books talking about how the Irish became white, how the Jews or Italians became white, they were already white. They certainly had to prove their worthiness of that whiteness, but they were never seen as people of color, even if they were treated just as poorly. You had mm -hmm. citizenship was the marker, and whiteness was the vehicle for citizenship. So, I mean, there's just... I mean, there's just no way you can get around that. But that does yep. not mean that a sign that says no Irish need apply is not insulting. I guess the point there is that it was a lot easier for my parents to find themselves integrated into, in, into whiteness, I guess. Absolutely. Than it would be, Absolutely. Than, yeah. And and I, I guess that's, you know, it's something you, you mentioned something that you, you touched on in your book, which is that the... In, in a lot of ways, the U.S. and Brazil are almost kind of crossing paths in a way where, you know, Brazil had this pursuit of a multiracial society, which obviously had, you know, a nefarious motive. Um, but it really, it, and, and I'll ask you to elaborate on this, it seemed to have led to political movements. It really sought to harden the definitions of race. And, and on the U.S., where we we began with a very hard definition of what is white and what is black it, that's almost been the reverse now i think there's some there's some real truth to that and i think one of the one of the challenges is the irony of all this is that the greater fluidity of categories and boundaries and the lack of official segregation meant that people had to create a greater clarity about boundaries to actually attack that uh, yeah and so and you know mobilizing um, one of the things that's really fascinating about this in the last census, I may have the numbers a little bit off, but I think 43% of the population identified as pardo, which means multiracial more or less, or at least that's mm -hmm. the, the better, uh, sort of a translation, and about 7 or 8% said they were black. The remainder were white, so that for the first time, actually, maybe since the 19th century, you have the number of black and multiracials combined being a majority. It's a very slim majority, like 1% or like 51 or 52%. But still, mm -hmm. in Brazilian history, that is a major shift because whites have always been 50 or higher up to 60% of the majority. Okay. But the way it was presented in the media because of the political struggles surrounding equity uh, for black people in Brazil was to say Brazil has a black majority. And yet if you look at that majority, it's 43% multiracial. Not preto, it's pardo rather than preto. And one of the struggles, yes. one of the struggles is with black activists has been to try to awaken through a political politicized identity, a black identity that shifts away from physical appearance and notions mm -hmm. of the distinctions between blacks and multiracials and see them both as black or multi, uh, you know, African Brazilian or negro, which is often the term used. And in some ways that makes a lot of sense strategically in terms of politics. But the fact that you still have 43% of the population seeing itself as multiracial shows you that somehow or another that strategy, strategy is not working because those people still see themselves as multiracial. And I think one of the challenges is to get people to see that being identified as a multiracial person does not deprive you of the desire to be an anti-racist. And I think the, the assumption is that if somebody's multiracial inevitably they will want to try to take advantage of that and move up in the hierarchy. And there are plenty of people who try to do that. The catch is, is that to be a multiracial anti-racist is just about the same as being a white or a black anti-racist, at least in terms of the agenda in the anti-racist struggle. And so by attacking the categories in and of themselves in Brazil, they've left this, this, this sort of un, un, unresolved problem. But can you, can you be part of the struggle, the black struggle even, and be a multiracial identified person. And I think they haven't quite resolved that. Uh, and with affirmative action, of course, Vania will tell you, it even gets more crazy because some of the terminology that was used early on, afrodescendente, yeah. so in some ways borrowing from the whole United States one drop rule. People will say that was not true. But I know that in the 90s, when I met some Brazilian activists, there was very much an affinity with that whole ancestral definition. And Afro-descendente means African descended. But as, yeah. I as I told them, I said, look, you're gonna get in trouble because if you use this definition, you could, there are a whole lot of white people who are African descended. 
mm-hmm. who are not who are not black or multiracial identified. So who are you? Who are you speaking to? And that surely happened with affirmative action because a lot of white identified students mm-hmm. said, "I'm an African descended person, what, so I should benefit too." And yeah. so it's hard in Brazil to mobilize around things because first of all, people don't necessarily always think racially as a primary category for mobilization. And then also the categories are very unstable, whereas at least in the United States, there's been a certain amount of stability because of segregation. That automatically creates a certain amount of clarity. But Mm -hmm. then when you throw in this whole new multiracial phenomenon that begins to fuzzy that clarity, a lot Mm -hmm. of people want to say, well, what does this mean? Who are these people? Where are their Mm -hmm. alliances? What impact is this going to have on me? And my location in the racial hierarchy, are these people anti-racist? Are they pro-white? What is? What are they? And and if you look at the Brazilian model, as an example, mm-hmm. you would be very suspicious of this whole multiracial phenomenon in the United States, because it hasn't worked there. Yeah. 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 And I guess, is there is there anything that could be put into practice in the United States that the Brazilians have maybe done right? Well, you know, I think, and I say this as, as it's, it's more of an aspiration than a an than an achievement or an accomplishment. I think, you know, we all originate as human beings based mm-hmm. on our current knowledge in terms of our genetics and history from Africa. That's our all. That's our home as human mm-hmm. beings. That's where we all evolved. Yeah. And there have been numerous dispersals from Africa, and one mm-hmm. of them was the African diaspora into the Americas, which in the Americas created this incredible kind of mixing, but. You know, you go back to 22 generations, you have, I forgot, I forgot the exact number at the moment, over about a million, over a million ancestors. And not all of them come from one place in the world. And so, on the one hand, a multiracial vision based in an Afrocentric understanding of our origins is central to who we are, but we don't even, but I mean, people can't even get that. But yeah. the, the multiraciality that at least Brazil has aspired to where we value all of our various components and embrace them all and treat each other and each each one of those components of people who reflect them with with greater equity um, is the, I would argue the what Brazil aspired to be or what it thought it had been that it never was is something yeah. I think any society could value um, but the problem is is the politics of thing and the hierarchy and the key is is that it has to be a, a critique not only you know. Uh, the clarity and the absolute restrictions of boundaries, but it also has to involve the the hierarchy that supports those. And if you don't attack the hierarchy, then you can create all kinds of new mutants that make you think you're doing something egalitarian, you're doing the exact opposite. So I would say it's the aspirational dimension of Brazil's racial democracy that was never fulfilled is admirable uh, for any, any society because it's about valuing, all of us valuing our basic ingredients of who we are mm-hmm. and also other people who reflect those in the larger society. And I think sometimes you need that ideal, however imperfect, to kind of guide you in a way, because I, I, I do feel like, obviously, it's no big secret, I think, we've gotten it wrong for a long time, you know, over yeah, and over that's again. that's absolutely true. And I think the, the only thing that's... Um, they're, the only thing that's kept it going, I think, or that's that's kept things progressing is this is this ideal and maybe the recognition that we fail to reach it. Well, that would be central and acknowledge the, the, the shortfall there. I think, uh, without taking any, not having any sense of shame or internalized guilt and just realize that the way that society is imperfect as our humans are, and you continue to strive. But I think, um, you know, for me, I have always believed, uh, not necessarily the kind of education we currently have, although that is the framework, um, mm-hmm. critical, a critical analytical education in which we really, as I said earlier, address the reality, not what we'd like to be, but just be real, be real about that without any intent to have an outcome in terms of what we want other than the facts, the truth, what, what took place, why it took, what, what was the cause of that and what impact did it have? Mm-hmm. And until we can actually step back from that those kinds of emotions of feeling like, oh, I'm a bad person, or, well, I didn't do anything wrong, or whatever, it's going to be hard to embrace that uh, yeah. history with a certain amount of objectivity, because people get their own personal, you know, egos involved. But if the schools were actually able to do that on a continuous basis, uh, and you're not just the schools, but, you know, in the boardroom, wherever, where people interact, I think there would be 
a different approach to things that would be much more uh, nuanced and also more productive in terms of how we handle them. There's a, a joke that comes to mind, and it's you know two fish are swimming along, and another fish swims by them and says, "How's the water?" And one fish looks to the other fish and says, "What's water?" <laughs> The stuff you're drowning in. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. I think what a lot of people get trapped in is they get trapped in this notion of if I acknowledge that what I've been taught it has racist underpinnings, um, then I, by virtue of that, am a bad person. Okay. Then I would say that's the first thing that needs to be interrupted because... Um, one, you know, one of the things that I always comes up about the issue of white privilege, and it sounds like, oh, okay, there's that, there's that mantra again. It's like, no, what it essentially says that it doesn't matter what you do in your individual life, even if you're an anti-racist ally, white ally, you benefit mm -hmm. from a system that privileges you based on your group identity. And mm -hmm. you don't have to take advantage of those terms. You can run away from them, but they don't vanish because they're there. They're given to you without you even asking for them. People yeah. who don't have that advantage don't have those. Even after struggling perhaps to achieve some sense of equity, they're mm -hmm. not born automatically with those unearned opportunities. But that does not make you anything other than a person who has an opportun unearned opportunity because of previous generations of people mm -hmm. who have passed mm -hmm. that on. But you have an opportunity to be engaged in struggle, to sort of end that process because of your own engagements in terms of achieving greater equity. But mm -hmm. internalizing guilt isn't useful. I found it really yeah. productive. It's like, you're not guilty of anything other than taking ownership of your own behavior and attitudes. Now, at the top of the episode, I asked you to think about the question, what does it mean to be black? And I hope you picked up on why in it. Because in the United States, we had the concept of the one-drop rule. This is the idea where one little trace of African ancestry effectively made you black. And as a result, the policies of segregation were introduced to effectively, quote unquote, protect the purity of the white race. Now, the only reason I put the quote unquote in there is so I don't sound like a Nazi saying that, because that is literally what these policies were designed to do. Now, Brazil, on the other hand, engaged in a deliberate practice of attempting to whiten the population by bringing more immigrants in from Europe. And by one study, the white population of Brazil grew from 34% in 1870 to 64% in 1940. And now the thing to hone in on here is the fact that post-emancipation, Brazil couldn't just accept its racial composition as it is and move on. And this is rooted in the principle of anti-blackness Reginald was talking about. You know, the idea that to be darker skinned is to be inferior. And as Reginald mentioned, that philosophy goes all the way back to the first settlers arriving in the New World and using the portrayal of darker-skinned natives as subhuman heathens as a way to justify taking their land and everything else and enslaving them. And that seems to me to be the point at which the idea of white supremacy and anti-blackness begins. And it's something that's evolved rather than disappeared over time. Now, few corrections before we wrap up. Uh, last week, Professor Brown stated that the editor of the 1619 Project was Hannah Nicole Jones. The editor's name is Nicole Hannah Jones. And she also mentioned that Jelani Cobb is a professor at the University of Connecticut. Uh, professor Cobb is actually a professor of journalism at Columbia University. Ever the historian, Professor Brown is spotless in her references and wanted to make sure that I made those corrections. So thank you very much for sending that on. Now, we're going to be going back to Brazil later this month, but next week we're making a stop in my home in the Northeast. The civil rights struggle in the 1960s is largely cast as a Southern problem. However, this historical narrative is largely false. And next week, I've got Jason Sokol, author of All Eyes Upon Us, Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn, to discuss the Northeast history of segregation, discrimination, and economic inequality during the Jim Crow era. Hope you'll join me. As always, You Don't Have to Yell is produced by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Everything else done by yours truly, the sickly but surviving Dan Sally. Until the next, this is Dan Sally signing off. <laughs>